I want them to sing it again. I don't want to sing them a third time. There's Our children and our church family are so precious. I, I was coming in here uh, during the Sunday school hour to set some things up, and I walked by a, uh, one of our children's classes, and there's a little table there, a little child-sized table, and, I, and uh, they were in another room doing some, doing some things and had left that area, and I snapped a picture of it. Uh, a table full of open Bibles. Just blessed my soul. You know, your life changes. God changes your life through His Word. And so, so go on and, and be fine in Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 24. I'm going to do a little something while you're doing that. I'm going to plug this little guy in here because I know some of you have already been thinking about it. And you're not going to be able to pay attention to the sermon. It's going to bother you too much. So it's a reminder to us that you can be present at church and not plugged in. You know what I'm saying? You can be here. If you open up your Bible, we're going to plug in. Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 24. I think I shared with you maybe last week or if not the week before that um, God has chosen to reveal Himself through His Word. So if you want to know God, you're going to know Him through His Word. I, I loved... Uh, uh, one of our readings, if you've, if you've been doing the daily Advent with us this week, talking about the wise men, and paraphrasing a little bit, but they're saying the star was great, but the star wasn't enough. They still needed to hear the word of the Lord. The star got them headed towards Bethlehem. God's word got them to Bethlehem. And so uh, we use this illustration on occasion, but if you want to know God, you've got to start with reading the Bible. You've got to read his word. So again, if you're not regularly reading the Word, you're not regularly hearing from God. And if you're not regularly hearing from God, you're just existing, you're not living. And you're just going to fill your life up with a lot of stuff that ultimately, friends, is not going to matter at all. And so that's the first step. You start reading the Word. And then second, you start studying the Bible. Yes, you want to have an open Bible, time set aside, but you start to ask God some questions from His Word. You read a passage of Scripture. Where this, is, this is what we'll do this morning from Luke 2 and Luke 24. What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about myself? In this passage I just read, is there an example to follow, a sin to avoid, a warning to pay attention to? Uh, and so you move from just, all right, check my box, I read it this morning, to God's actually going to speak to you about you. It's not enough for you to speak to you about you, and the reason for that is you lie to you about you all the time. You don't need to listen to yourself. You need something outside of yourself to tell you the truth about yourself. So you go from Bible reading to Bible study, and then you go to Bible memorizing. I mean, saturate your mind in the things of God. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law. He meditates day and night. Bible reading, Bible study, Bible memorizing, Bible meditating. And that means now I'm taking what you've said in your word, God, and I'm really thinking about what it means for my life. We're not studying Joseph this morning, but Joseph, uh, Mary's husband, is one of my favorite. We did look at him in Sunday school, and there's two words used about Joseph that I love. It says, while he was considering these things, you know, he'd heard that his betrothed was expecting a child. He didn't understand all these things. While he resolved to divorce her quietly, unwilling to put her to shame, and then while he considered these things, resolved, considered. We talked about this morning that Joseph is a man who thought and meditation is thinking about how to take the Scripture that I've read, I've studied, I've memorized, and apply it to my life. That is how God speaks to you. Now, in Luke 24 and Luke chapter 2, 
What I want to do is, uh, is to make a little bit of a comparison. And really this sermon comes from in my own life, sort of, sort of meditating on these two chapters. And several years ago now, I just thought to myself, uh, if I'm going to memorize a passage, it was Christmas time, I'm going to memorize Luke chapter 2. And then that Easter, I said, well, I'll memorize Luke chapter 24. And, and over the years, as I've sort of prayed over these passages and, and, and have meditated on them, I began to see there's a lot of parallels here. So it's sort of like a Highlights magazine. I know that's old. Did anybody grow up with Highlights magazine? My favorite part of Highlights magazine is you'd open, it was a children's magazine back in the 80s, and maybe it's still around, I don't know. It's probably digital now, but, but back then the paper copies, is they'd have two pictures. Might be a couple of children playing in a playground, and then there's two pictures, and you would have to spot the differences, right? And you'd circle them up, and they'd tell you how many. So, so we're going to look at Luke 2 and 24, not to spot the differences, but actually to spot the similarities. So there's going to be parallels, and in light of the parallels, I'm going to give you a principle. Does that make sense? So something that happens in Luke, 20, uh, Luke 2, sort of reiterated in Luke 24, and on light of that parallel, a principle for your life. How are you doing, by the way? How's life doing? How's life going? We're not just here to get six parallels, and now that was interesting. You need Jesus in your real life. And so I just want to preface by saying the things that take place, and we'll see Luke's pretty specific about this, they happen in the real world. So, so we want to approach this not thinking, well, this is the Christmas story, and this is the resurrection, and this sort of uh, happens in sort of somewhere far off. No, it happens in the real world because God is a real Savior for your real life for what's really going on. So let's start with this parallel number one. In both Luke 2 and in Luke 24, angels show up with announcements and proclamations, right? That's parallel number one. In both Luke 2 and in Luke 24, angels show up with announcements and proclamations. So we got the shepherds in Bethlehem and the, woman, uh, the women at the tomb were both absolutely terrified, right, when the angels show up. Most any time an angel shows up in the real world, in the Scripture, people flip out. They're scared to death. In Luke 2, that's to say, fear not. In Luke 24, it says the women were terrified and put their faces to the ground. So I just want to tell you, it's better to encounter real holiness now and be fearful than to never be fearful through this life and encounter real holiness when this life is over. Because if you've never had the fear of God placed in you, it just means that you've never known Him as He really is. Here's the great thing about the Lord and His heart. Humble enough to be incarnated and placed in a manger, but let's not mistake Him for anything less than glorious and powerful. And why are they fearful? Because He's holy. We're not surrounded by holiness much in our world. But anytime real holiness steps in, the first thing people do is they get terrified. And can I just tell you, when the angels appeared, it was not to Caesar Augustus, it was not to Quirinius, it was not to Pilate, it's not to Herod. In Luke 2, they appear to shepherds in the same region, verse 8. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So real fast, when the angels show up, what are the shepherds doing? They're working. They're not idle, they're working. When the angels, or who do the angels show up to in Luke 24? They went to the tomb, taking with them the spices that they had prepared. In other words, it was a sort of mundane but necessary task. These women are working. 
They're seeking to do something on behalf of Jesus. Have you noticed this in the Bible? God very rarely speaks to people who are just sitting around doing nothing. When he calls Abraham, Abraham's being faithful in what he knows to do. When he calls Moses, Moses is taking care of his father's, uh, father-in-law's flock, right? How about David? Well, when he goes to anoint the next king, Samuel doesn't even have David in the room because David is, well, he's a shepherd. He's watching flock. Gideon's at the wine press. Ruth's in the barley field. Over and over again, we see that God speaks to people who are already showing diligence and quiet faithfulness of some kind. What they also have in common the, when the angels appear is that is the shepherds were uh, sort of overlooked. Socially, they were the lowest of the low, often excluded from worship. I mean, when people gathered to worship, shepherds were sort of shunned because, well, they happened to often be dirty and a little messy and not welcome. And then you might know this, at the resurrection, it was a group of women who uh, are going about their mundane tasks. But in those days, uh, women couldn't even give uh, testimony in, in uh, legal matters. But as to them, that God says, well, I'm going to let you give testimony of what I have done. So if your heart is being shaped by God, you will have a heart more and more for the overlooked and the left out. And also, you'll be less and less worried about being overlooked and left out because the grace of God has welcomed you into his own family. And don't you also think that when the angels appeared, Caesar Augustus, real fast, got a whole lot less impressive in their hearts and their minds? Caesar Augustus issued a decree saying all the world should be registered. He's about 60-some years old, Caesar Augustus is at this time. He's been the first Roman emperor for a little while, most powerful man. He issues decrees, people listen. And then then Pilate in Luke 24 had issued some decrees as well. But at the moment of Jesus' birth, it becomes evident that Caesar isn't really so powerful after all. And then I'd also say, at his birth for sure, What do you think the subject of conversation was for most people? Caesar and his census. But God is at work. And the attention of heaven is on the activity of Christ. So here's the principle. There's the parallel. Here's the principle. We actually need help understanding what's really important in life. If you're not careful, you'll go through life thinking about Caesar, Quirinius, Pilate, censuses, and whatever whatever has the headline at the moment. But heaven is headlines are always about Jesus. That Roman Empire at the time, didn't it seem so powerful? And then the baby in the manger seemed so powerless? But Jesus is the one whose kingdom never ends. So, are you looking to God to get help to understand what's really important in life? Second parallel that we see is those who receive the message, they go and tell others. We didn't quite read far enough in Luke chapter 2, so read with me in verse 15. This is after the angels have uh, gone away. Uh, In verse 15, the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And they saw it. They made known the saying that had been told 
to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, we live in a move-on-quickly world. Whatever was trending a week ago, probably whatever, you know, you, you tuned into that was the number one trending story of three weeks, or if it was on Instagram or TikTok and had the attention of the day, that by the next day it was just over and done with. But, but here, those who receive news about something that's really important, they go and tell others. Can you imagine the shepherds having seen what they saw and showing up and asking Mary and Joseph, so how's that census thing going? Or the women returning from the tomb and saying to the apostles, anybody feel like going fishing? Friends, nobody has ever truly received the news of the gospel and failed to share that message. So so please listen to what I'm saying. You may have heard about Jesus and not shared, but you've never heard from Jesus and not shared. Caesar Augustus issued a a decree and the people obeyed because he was powerful and he was to be feared. And you notice that the mightiest earthly king of the day, Caesar Augustus, why has he issued this decree that all the world should be registered? Why? Taxes, right? He wants to know how many people are out there so he can make sure that his tax money is coming in as it should. In other words, the mightiest person, king in the world at that time, and one of the mightiest that's ever, he's not seeking to bless people, he's seeking to get from people. And in great contrast to that, you see the king of the universe has come not to give, but, I'm sorry, not to take, but to give. Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And I would encourage us as a church family that that we have a king who has issued a decree called the Great Commission that we will listen to and we will obey. He's issued a command, go into all the world. So just real fast, I do want to say, if God has given you a call to go to the nations, do not harden your heart. You have a God on your side who's greater than whatever perceived barriers and obstacles are in your mind. And when it comes up, you quickly say, ah, no, not, not, not me. Not now. But friends, when your heart stops beating or when Jesus, with the voice of the archangel, shouts and returns, I promise you, you will never regret obedience to the Lord. And you might think, hey, if an angel showed up, I might listen. But I do want to tell you, friends, you've got something better than an angel's pronouncement. You have the word of God. We'd often say that uh, you, you don't need Jesus and in order to be saved, right? It's by grace you're saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You don't need Jesus plus something to be saved. And it glorifies God when you don't need Jesus and something to obey. Have you ever had something good to you, uh, good happen to you rather, and you didn't share? Isn't it natural, right? Something happens good to you. And you post it or proclaim it. And the better the news, the more you share. So that brings us to the, the parallel, brings us to the principle. 
God's message has come to us that we will take the good news to others. The good news of the gospel hasn't come to you to stop with you. Last weekend, I had the great privilege of being a part of a wedding and have an opportunity, a blessing to be a part of a wedding today. Now, can you imagine how a guy would feel if he gets on his knees and says, will you marry me? And the lady responds, yes, I will, but let's not tell anybody about this. I don't know that anything gets more likes and whatnot on social media or attention than the announcement of an engagement or a wedding, right? That just brings everybody birth announcements and those kind of those good news, right? When those things, when those things happen. Can you imagine the bride-to-be saying, let's just keep this personal. It's just between us. But friends, for some reason, that's what people sometimes can think, that my relationship with God is personal. It's just between me and him. Well, if it's between you and him, he's the one who said, go to the nations, right? So that's his heart. God's message has come to us so that we will take the good news to others. And I would tell you, I, I think sometimes we get tripped up on this, that we just think, well, I'm not sure how to share the gospel. I'm not sure what I should say. I fear I'll get it wrong. I, I fear I'll push people further away. Well, friends, if people don't know the Lord, they're already far away. You don't have to worry about making them further away. I, I don't think I'll get it right. And if I knew, well, uh, I'd also tell you when I, I asked Julie to be my wife, she didn't respond by saying, I don't want to tell anybody. I'm afraid I'll get it wrong. How do you get sharing good news wrong? You just share the good news. I've been forgiven of my sins. God's brought me from death to life. In the same way that you tell good news about anything else, we can understand that this is how we tell the good news about Jesus. And there's a third parallel, and it's this. People have to go and see things for themselves. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that had happened. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 14, it says, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 24 and verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by himself, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Had to go see it for themselves. One of the stories my mom always tells about me when I was little, from the moment I was born, man, I just loved ice cream. Just loved it. Grew up in a house of three hungry boys, and so it would happen on occasion that all the ice cream got eaten before I could get any for myself. My mom loved this flavor called Heavenly Hash. I don't even know if they make that anymore. Is Heavenly Hash still a thing? I always was disappointed if my mom brought home Heavenly Hash, but push-ups, orange sherbet push-ups, you remember those? And most any other flavor, it's thrilled. But sometimes I'd say, Mom, I want some ice cream. And she would say, we're out. And she always tells the story, I, four or five years old, would go to the trash can, open the lid, and have to see the evidence for myself that the box actually was empty. Friends, it's not that people have sought God and found Him wanting. It's that they've not sought Him at all. And specifically, not sought Him in the way that He said He can be found. My favorite things to do with my children, uh, my little ones in particular, is to play hide-and-seek. I don't like to play with the teenagers because they get good at it, you know, and I'm just, I can't find them anywhere. When, when, uh, when Abel in particular was little, we were at church one Sunday, and uh, he just decided he was going to hide. Me and Chad Williams looked everywhere, could not find him. 
Finally found him in a closet. I mean, he was there like a long, it got to the point where I was like, we're going to have to call somebody. And then I found him and I said, buddy, we could not find you. With his little blue eyes, he looked up at me. He said, I know. I was hiding. Now that was most of the time they were easy to find. Friends, God's not hard to find. Two chapters we just looked at. If you want to know the heart of God, he's humble. He's accessible. He takes the initiative. You will search for me and find me when you look for me with all your heart. The issue for many of us is often we're kind of looking for him half-heartedly, not wholeheartedly. If you want to know what he's like, look at the manger. If you want to know what he's like, look at the cross. If you want to know what he's like, look at the empty tomb. Because it's not that you're not looking for something. You are looking But we often look for a God of our own making, a God of our own design. We look to the false God of entertainment or the false God of any number of other things. But if you look for God as he truly is and where you can truly find him, you will find him in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Shepherd said, man, we heard from heaven, but we're going to go look and find these things out for ourselves. And then Peter says the same. So, friends, uh, someone else can't find God on your behalf. Some of you have praying parents, but your praying parents cannot find God for you. As much as they would want to, you have to go look for yourself. So that's the principle. You seek God for yourself. The fourth parallel, initially when I thought about it, I said, well, I don't know that that's very important but it's this that Luke records a note about cloths right in Luke chapter 2 verse uh, verse 7 she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn and then in Luke chapter 24 Again, looking at verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Man, I don't think there's a more powerful scene in the world just about than a mom with her newborn child, right? The care, the, uh, the love, the tenderness, and, and swaddling the, the baby. And we see that in, in Bethlehem, that there's Mary wrapping him in, in, in cloths and and, and then we get this uh, other detail that Peter goes to the tomb and all that's left in the tomb are the linen cloths. In other words, the, the, the grave clothes. But it's a clear picture for us, isn't it? That Jesus really did clothe himself in our humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He stepped into the real world. He's God come near. He's Emmanuel, God with us. So if you've ever felt like God is a million miles away, he is as near as the clothes that you wear. The one who spoke the heavens and the earth into creation was swaddled. And not just swaddled, also draped in grave clothes. Now, the swaddling cloths he outgrew, and praise God Almighty, the grave he has overcome. If you think about it, both the swaddling clothes, cloths and the grave cloths were put on him in times of hardship, times of suffering, times of confusion. I mean, I, I don't want to um, romanticize 
the difficulty that Mary and Joseph have gone through. I mean, you think about it with me for just a moment. They've returned to Bethlehem, and there's no place for them. Now, what, one of the things that we can take for this is if ever there was going to be a place for Mary and Joseph, it would have been there. I mean, we're talking about a culture and a people where family means so much. We're going to go out of our way to provide a place, especially, I mean, let's just think about it for a moment. Of all people that you would find a place for in your home as their family, wouldn't it be a mom about to give birth? And I do think there's an overtone of rejection, separation. Oh, Mary and Joseph, you heard their silly story and what they're going around telling people? He came to his own and his own received him not. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So the, the swaddling cloths, and don't you love Mary treasuring all these things up in her heart, pondering them? In a moment of discouragement, God does give them some encouragement. Here come these shepherds. Say, man, y'all aren't crazy. We've heard this same thing. And then the grave clothes, of course, draped on him in the midst of suffering. When things don't seem clear in a manner of speaking. So the principle for us is that God is near and at work in the real world. And one of the times that you can most, God's always near, but one of the times you can most trust that God is near is in times of hardship, suffering, and confusion. Can we also see together that Jesus suffers? Fifth parallel, remember I have six, so number five. People marvel at what happened. Verse 20, chapter 2. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I also want you to just see a phrase in verse 15. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And then in chapter 24, in verse 12, Again, Peter rose and went to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Did you know that you're made to marvel? That's how God made you. And you flat out are a marveler. Everybody in the room marvels at something. I know we've said this before, but to say it again, you worship something. It's another way of saying you have a God, and here's how you know what it is. You don't, have to, you don't have to wonder. Truth be told, you already know what it is that you worship. But here you go. Heard this a long ago, but I tell you again, you add three things up. What gets your attention? We can think about whatever it is in the world you want to think about. What do you think about? Your, uh, your affection. What stirs up your emotions? What brings tears to your eyes? What brings a lump to your throat? What gets your heart rate going a little bit more? Your attention, your affection, and then your allegiance. What is it in your life that you put everything else on hold for but for that? Attention, affection, allegiance, you know what it is that you're marveling at. And you were marvel, made to marvel at something. If you don't marvel at the Creator, you will marvel at something in creation. But can I tell you what will happen? Inevitably, 
if you marvel at something other than the Creator. You'll ultimately be frustrated, fearful, disappointed, addicted, discouraged, confused. Because you were made to know God. So, hey, marvel at the sunset because you're marveling at the one who made it. Don't just marvel at the Grand Canyon or the ocean, but the Creator who made them. Marvel at a God who humbles himself and takes on the form of a servant and marvel at Jesus who became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's the principle. Marvel at what's really worth marveling about. Or to put it another way, marvel at what you'll marvel at a thousand years from now. Marvel at what heaven marvels about. Glory to God in the highest. And friends, it's okay to confess to God that you've lost your wonder, lost your awe, lost your marveling of him. Man, the world is tough. The world, hardships, our own sin nature can, can tamper down our awe and marvel of God. But God can give it back. And this usually happens in light of our sixth and last parallel. And that is, Jesus is not where anyone would expect him to be. Jesus is not where anyone expects him to be. It begins with him being in a womb that you wouldn't expect him to be, that of a virgin. And it ends with him not in a tomb where you would expect him to be. Don't you think the contrast between Caesar Augustus, where he slept that night, and where Jesus slept in Luke 2 is, would be something? Or, or, or maybe think about it, do you think there's any possibility that Caesar Augustus would have shown up in Bethlehem and there not been room made for him? He'd have gotten the nicest bed in town, right? But there's no room for Jesus. When Jesus came, humanity's response is, we don't have room for you, and if we're going to put you anywhere, here's where we'll put you, on a Roman cross, and then in the tomb. So, Jesus demonstrates that he is willing, in humility, to be laid in a manger, but he is, praise God, unwilling to stay in the grave. No place for him, go to the manger, here's a place for you, the tomb. And this is one of the messages of Christmas, God came to earth and men and women put him to death he's not where people expect him to be in Luke 24 even his faithful followers showed up to the tomb to anoint him with burial spices I mean I, I think we've said this before but just to say it again Can you think of anything more inappropriate to take to a resurrection than burial spices? And every time I read this passage, I have this thought. Those ladies were faithful. Those ladies showed up when nobody else did. Preparing burial spices was hard work. You didn't go to Walmart and pick up a can. You, you, it, was, it required diligence, endurance, perseverance. But ultimately... All of their effort was misguided and misappropriated. And if we're not careful, that's what we can do in churches. Not a matter of working hard or showing up, but is what I'm doing in line with serving a resurrected Savior? The first thing the angel does in Luke chapter 24 is to remind them about something. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be turned over to the hands of sinful men, suffer, be crucified, and then rise again. 
I always think about one of them, Mary or Joanne or whoever, just kind of like putting the burial spices away real fast, right? Let's cover those up. I can't believe I brought burial spices to a resurrection. Friends, I don't want to take burial spices before the throne of God and say, man, I lived my life and I was diligent and I was faithful and I showed up when nobody else did. But have you marveled at what happened? And are you obeying the great commission that God has given to us? Well, Jesus is not where we would expect him to be. He wasn't where they thought he would be in Bethlehem, yet there he is. And in between his birth and his resurrection, there is one other place I want you to consider that he was that you might not expect him to be. And that is bearing the wrath of God for your sin in your place on the cross. And what will get you to marveling is when you see where he is, and that's where you should have expected to be. That's where you deserve to be. On the cross, in the tomb, forgotten and forsaken by God. But hallelujah, there is hope for everyone. That's our sixth principle. And God does not conform to our expectations. He goes gloriously beyond them. Hey, God can do greater things in your life than you might think he can this morning. He can restore the relationship that you've decided is beyond repair. He, he can give grace and power to overcome that sinful stronghold you think can never be overcome. You've just concluded. So always be something I wrestle with. He overcame the grave. He can overcome that. He can turn that precious prodigal child that you have, their heart, back to himself. He can bring revival to our church. He is the Savior. He is Christ. He is the Lord. In conclusion, I just want you to think about those three names that the angel announced about Jesus. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior tells us what he does. What's your role? What's your job? What's your responsibility in the world? Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. One of my favorite uh, little snippets on college game day on ESPN is a little thing they do called you had one job have you ever seen this and this guy he's all he's supposed to do is block this one guy and he totally misses it and the guy gets smashed or whatever hey jesus has one job in your life to seek you out and to save you he's the savior he also says he's the savior who is christ that's the anointed one that's the promised one not just anybody he is the longed for messiah and he is the Lord. It tells us his purpose. It tells us his nature. And it tells us his authority. He is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray together. Have a time of response. I know I gave you six parallels and six principles all I'm going to ask you to do right now is just to grab a hold of one of them as we respond together. Would you bow your heads with me? And I'm just briefly going to go through them. And you just grab a hold of one of them. Are you seeking right now in your life help from God to understand what's really important? Are you really seeking God to help you understand what is important to life? 
Listen again to the Scripture. Blessed. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. If you were to be honest, is that the input that you have in your heart, in your mind, in your life? But his delight's in the law of the Lord. And if you have, honestly this morning, if you have no desire to spend time in God's word, you open the Bible and you're bored, would you ask God in the time of invitation to awaken you to desire things of the Lord? Second, maybe it's been a long time since you've actually really shared somebody with somebody about the good news of Jesus. That that burden, that desire sort of waned in your soul. What we see in Luke 2 and Luke 24, when these glorious things happen, somebody goes and tells somebody else. Ask God to give you a godly burden for those who've never heard. And then we see people go and find things for themselves. So maybe this morning you say, God, give me desire to seek you. Maybe this morning you feel like God's a million miles away. Swaddled him in cloths at his birth, draped him in grave clothes at his death. He has come near. Maybe you'd ask God, would you, would you help me to see that you are near? Maybe you're not marveling at what's actually happened. Say, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Or you grab a hold that God does not conform to your expectations. He goes gloriously beyond them. If God did exactly what you think he should do, it would end up being so much less than what he's actually doing. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. At Calvary, God in our place. At the empty tomb, God triumphant. Fill this place now with the joyful praise of a grateful people who marvel at what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.